welcome to the Board Shorts podcast, where we deliver board and director-related concepts and information to help you survive and thrive in the boardroom. Welcome back to another episode of the Board Shorts podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for listening. My name is Lisa Cook, and I'm the founder and managing director of Get On Board Australia, helping new and aspiring board members to thrive in the boardroom. Today, I'm speaking with a return guest, Julie Garland McClellan. Now, Julie and I have a great conversation today about governing well in a human relations crisis. And if you're wondering what that is all about, then this is the episode for you. We actually touch on what we mean when we talk about a human relations crisis, what the board's role is in leading and governing through a human relations crisis, what your legal and moral responsibilities are in relation to reports of inappropriate behavior and misconduct within the organization. And we wrap that all up and touch on what are some of the key learnings that we have gained from boards that have done this poorly and also from boards that have done this well. And this is such a current conversation that's happening. You do not have to look far to see organizations in Australia and elsewhere that are having human relations crises right now. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. At the end of the day, people make up businesses and people uh, inherently have conflict there and problems can ensue. But this is such a valuable conversation. It's dynamic. It's engaging. I really hope that you enjoy it. Uh, it was great to have Julie back on the podcast and we hope to have her in future episodes. But for now, I will let you enjoy today's conversation about governing well in a human relations crisis with Julie Garland McClellan. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast again. It's great to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Awesome. Let's jump into it. Talking about human relations crisis and how we govern well through these. Now, I want to start at the obvious. (laughs) What is a human relations crisis? Well, it's a bit hard to define. I often use the analogy that it's a little bit like a hippopotamus. You know it when you see it, but try describing it to somebody who has no idea of the concept and it just spirals into impossible metaphors immediately. But any time where you have a crisis and people do not trust the relationships that are being used to manage that crisis, I would say you have a human relations crisis. Ah, so what are some examples? Uh, well, the uh, prime example at the moment would be, um, for example, AMP, where people started to lose trust with the decision-making ability of the board um, and in particular their choice of who would lead the organisation Um, because they were making that choice, it appeared on purely rational economic grounds rather than cultural um, and behavioural grounds. And there'd be a bit of background to that. Um, You add to that, for example, clean away and some of the um, allegations that are coming out about behaviours there, 
You add to that, for example, one of the recent banks which told um, employees that they were not to leak information that they were given in the course of their jobs to the press when that information was about things that the press was already speculating on. And so it's all those little things that erode people's trust in the structures and status that's used to um, to govern or to direct an organisation out of a problem. Um, and there would be so many millions of them. They're not new. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about this um trying to fall asleep last night, as you do, <laughs> think about these kind of conversations. When you get back to or boil every every sort of, um, if you want to call it a crisis within an organisation, doesn't it always come back to people? And so isn't every crisis or significant problem within an organisation a human relations crisis? Um, I think it really does always come back to people. And um, that's quite important because we don't really always use our people structures well. We, we pay them lip service. We, we, um, we rely on the legal minimums. We rely on contractual relationships. So, yes, I think anywhere that people are involved, you're going to have these people-related issues. Mm. Yes, that's everywhere. <laughs> yep. Um, so then we need to understand how, how we as board members um, lead and govern through this. So what, what is the board's role in leading and governing through a human relations crisis? Yeah, I think the board's role in a human relations crisis is exactly the same as the board's role in any other area of corporate endeavour which is to understand the purpose of the company, to set a strategy and to create and delegate power so that the strategy can be enacted. Now, that is a very broad and very basic, almost definitional um, definition of governance. But when it comes to these human relations crises, we tend to get very excited about the latest theories or the latest um, manifestations and this isn't good enough and that isn't good enough, rather than going back to those first principles and saying, who's in charge? Was that a good decision? If it wasn't, let's fix it. And if it was, then where are the structures? Where are the issues? Or do we simply monitor and make sure that the implementation gets us out of this problem? So really bringing the board's role back to the board's role. Um, And it's not that Milton Friedman, you must make money and forget any other stakeholders other than your shareholders, um, which is actually not what he said, but it's what he's paraphrased as having said. Um, But it's really about understanding what is this company for? What is the best way for this company to achieve that? And how do we balance and optimise all of those interests in the best interests of the corporation? Because that's what directors are supposed to do. Mm. So how does a board do that well? Um, If you look at boards that have done it well, very often they are quite diverse. 
So they have already had a range of viewpoints. They've already been alerted to the fact that there might be issues in certain areas of their plans. Um, So they've started, they're out ahead of the issue. They're thinking ahead. Um, The other thing you'll see is even if they're not diverse, they do not govern purely through boardroom decisions, minutes, agendas, papers. Um, They are out of the boardroom. It's what I call governance by wandering about. You have directors who understand the customer, directors who understand the supply chain, who get out and talk to major shareholders, who get out and talk to the occasional retail shareholder, um, who are active in visiting company operations and really understanding what's going on. There is nothing better than a director who understands the business Um, for helping you to get out of this sort of issue. Um, And in particular, you need to understand the shareholders and you need to engage with them. And David Gonski, who is one of my absolute governance heroes, once said, we talk about shareholder engagement. I can tell you that the AGM is not an engagement. It's more like a drunken one-night stand with a room full of strangers. (laughs) And I don't quite know how David knows what a drunken one night stand with a room full of strangers feels like, but I've been to a few AGMs and he is correct. There is nothing that remotely resembles engagement in a traditional, typical AGM. It's very much you ask questions, we provide answers. If we don't have answers, we'll take the question on notice and we'll get back to you next year. Um, It's very formal. It's very formulaic. In fact, most of the information you're given, you've already got. Uh So the engagement is very one directional, whereas for a true engagement, you need it to be bi-directional. So it is all about having those different forums and those different places where directors can engage with shareholders and really understand what they want. Um, And a really good example of a board that quite publicly came a little bit unstuck was um, James Hardy. I was fortunate to be um, invited to come along as a governance person to watch the first um, AGM that they had after their big disaster. Um, And, yeah, Pushing your way through the protesters to get into the room was interesting in and of itself. But once they opened up the microphones for conversation, shareholder after shareholder walked up to the microphone and said, look, Meredith, we know you were trying to maximize profits and we know you've been very successful in that, but we own this company. We don't want to own a company that deliberately hurts people and then runs away from the consequences. We're willing to fund things that we're responsible for. We're not willing to walk away from this. And she was listening as a good chairperson will. And then from amongst the ranks of expensive suits in the room, a gentleman was ejected and he walked up to the microphone. He pretty much said, look, um, I've heard what everybody else has said, but I own far more shares than all of them put together. 
and I'm a fund and I get measured on my performance every three months. So you literally can't trash value to sort this out. Wow. And you could see Meredith going, oh, I know I can't. Because they had unwittingly walked into an arena where they had pitched different shareholder interests against each other. And this is one of the things that I find actually quite interesting and quite exciting about the new regime is that boards can now interact with and receive information from retail shareholders. And these are the people who really feel a deep sense of ownership with the company and who are in it for the long term. So it is important, even if their stakes are small, to understand their views. So a really good board will understand the shareholders. And then the other thing you'll see with the good boards is they don't fight each other. Mm. Um, Look at CBA sending information to say, oh, no, that's not what I saw. Mm. Um, I saw something completely different at that meeting. When there are minutes, there's evidence in a royal commission. That sort of division Mm. is really bad form. And it tells you that when the board is discussing a difficult and contentious issue, they are probably not focusing on the issue as much as they are focusing on winning for their part and their faction. So a good board will stick together even in bad circumstances. And unfortunately for the the members of the press, that means you don't get those juicy little sound bites, but it Mm. does mean you get better governance and better outcomes. Mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's so much in there to unpack. There is, <laughs> isn't there? Pl- plenty of conversation for us in the future, I think, as well. Um, but I did, I, I wanted to come back and touch on this, what you talked about, governance by wandering about, um, which I think is such a fantastic idea and it flies in the face of kind of what a lot of people feel is a, pure governance board role where you stay out of the operations, you're, you're hands off, you, you don't get involved within the business in, in any way like that, which I think is a little, um, do I want to say ridiculous? When <laughs> I mean, How do you really get to know the organisation and the business if you're never exposed to the organisation and the business? Um, but anyway, coming back to that, how do how do board members do that appropriately? How do you govern by wandering about in the mm. right way? Yeah, again, it comes back to those first principles of governance and that idea of noses in, fingers out is fine until your nose finds something rotten, mm. in which case... Either you alert the fingers that are supposed to be handling it and they deal with it, and if you think they can't, then you have a moral duty to roll up your sleeves and get stuck in. Um, In fact, there was a wonderful um, lady, a lawyer from America, who wrote a very thought-provoking article recently about when it is morally unacceptable for a director to resign. Because, of course, again, one of those tenets is if you don't like what's happening, you can always resign. That's one of your rights as a director. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you've governed into an untenable situation, 
one of your duties is to help put that right. So in all of these things, you have to go back to that first principle of what's the best interest of this company. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we talk about governance by wondering about, it's that amazing curiosity about what's going on and why and how. It's that ability to gently ask questions without ever appearing to give an instruction. And one of the things I always say is if you've asked more than three questions about something, let the line management above where you've been talking know because I look in the mirror and I see this little old lady called Julie and I go, oh, yes, that's, that's just me. But when I walk out into the operations of one of the businesses where I sit on the board, mm-hmm. they don't see me. They see a director. Mm-hmm. And if a director asks three or four questions about something, well, that thing must be really important. Mm-hmm. And you subtly rearrange their priorities without even realizing you've done it. Mm. So if I've had a conversation that I feel has gone deeper into something, I will very often close it out by saying, thank you so much. As a director, I want to understand these things. This doesn't mean that there's a priority here. It's just me filling in some black spots in my own education. But usually if I've had a deep conversation with a member of staff, I will go a couple of levels above that member and say, look, I spoke to so-and-so. We spent quite a bit of time talking about this. I really appreciate it, but just watch out that priorities remain as you want them. Yeah. Um, Because that's what can happen. The other thing is if I'm going to talk to staff, usually the the, um, CEO and the chair will know in advance. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, I mean, sometimes you're standing in the queue at Woolworths and somebody says, hello, Julie. And you go, oh. Hello, and it's your CFO. Um, Obviously, you're not going to say, right, I'm not talking to you because this isn't a business situation. But if the conversation goes into business, which it usually will because it's the one area of real shared interest we have, Mm -hmm. again, I will think afterwards, should I just let the CEO and the chair know what we talked about um, so that they're aware of these things? And particularly as a director, being aware that I'm asking questions, I'm never giving instructions, I'm never giving direction, there is a chain of command for that, and it goes up and through the CEO. So everything you do is done with and through the CEO using properly delegated authority. Um, And the same goes with making statements. When I see company Mm. directors talking to the Mm. press, it's like, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. Has the chair authorised you to say this? Yep. Or even through social media too, board members making comments. Mm. Yes, yes, Elon Musk would be the pin-up boy for that one, (laughs) wouldn't he? Um, And I really, really sympathise with Robin Denholm for the difficulty of governing an organisation where on the one hand you have this absolutely brilliant entrepreneur in charge, but on the other hand, you still have to comply with all of these disclosure rules and all of these protocols, which are anathema to the way Mm. in which that sort of entrepreneur thinks. Mm. 
Yeah. So I think what it comes down to is, is just sort of bringing in some of those practices that, that are seen as sort of non-traditional governance type practices that board members can do is that there's a right and appropriate way to do that as you've communicated. And that's how you do it in a proper manner. (laughs) You're not just, not just going off half cocked into the workplace. What is that? What is that? How about you think about doing it this way? That's not the right kind of question to be asking when you talk about questions, you know, talk the leading questions. Um, So I quite like that. I'd like to see more people, um, I don't want to say get involved, but get in and get to know it. Mm. David Crawford once said there's no room in the boardroom for a director who does not understand the business. And... I totally agree. If yeah. you don't know what sort of people you've got, what sort of things they're doing, how they make money, why your products and services are attractive to your shareholders, why you've chosen to structure your finances with this balance of debt and equity rather than a different one, you really do have to have a very holistic understanding because the value is often in the linkages between those things. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I kind of want to keep on this governing by wandering about. And I, as I was reviewing our, what we were going to talk about today, I had the thought, and I'd love your perspective on this, on whether, do you think directors should actively seek out these these human relations issues that might be existing and festering within the organisation. They may not have got all the way up to the board level yet, but there's something that could, you know, get to that tipping point and be a real move into crisis territory. So then do you think that you should actively be seeking it out? I think it depends on how you actively seek out So, for example, if there are potential human relations crises, that's one thing, we've all got them. But if they're festering, that's another thing. That tells you that your information flows aren't appropriate. That tells you that there's something that's preventing the staff who have the concern from bringing it to the attention of people who can deal with it. So as a director, I would be very interested in the structures and systems and less interested in the symptoms of the individual cases. Um, So, for example, if I feel that I have power imbalances between senior and junior staff, well, that's quite possibly because of the way in which senior staff are delegated large amounts of power which they retain, it's possibly in the way in which they are remunerated, which is different to the way in which staff are remunerated, that tipping point at which pay for performance starts to really kick in. um, And below that, it's just pay for hours. Mm. And very often, there are a lot more hours than are officially on the uh, timesheet. That is always an, an interesting interface. 
Mm-hmm. And so as a director, rather than say, oh, my gosh, we, we underpaid some people in this particular class, it's more a question of saying, who is in charge of our payment structure? What is our philosophy on remuneration? What are the controls? What would alert us? Um, who's looking? When did we last audit? And really understanding that sort of thing. And if I could segue from there, this takes time. Mm. Every company is unique. So when you join a board, it takes a while to understand the people and the philosophies and the structures, and all of these things are in flux. So you're not just understanding what's there, you're understanding where it's come from and where it's going to and how you at this point in time can direct that in order to achieve a better outcome for the organisation. Then you need to start thinking about the... um, the amount of time that that takes and the amount of time it takes to really sink in. And if we look, for example, at AMP, clearly that was a disastrous decision to appoint someone into a role in the way in which they did it and then to respond to Mm. the questions that were raised about that in the way in which they responded. But you look at that board, there's nobody there who has been there for more than two years. Mm. So their interaction in two years would have been possibly 12 formal board meetings, a couple of strategy sessions, maybe a few out of session. Um, They probably saw the gentleman that they had appointed to that role three, four times in very formal, short presentations in the context of board meetings they probably did not have a great deal of experience of what that gentleman's peers thought of him. Mm. They didn't have those sorts of banks of experience of we've travelled together, we've walked around an operation together, we've discussed an audit result together, I've seen how this person interacts with his or her direct reports. I've seen how they interact with very junior people. Um, I often draw in governance quotes from governance experts who are not in the governance arena. And Muhammad Ali once said, if I'm out with someone and they're rude to the waiter, I don't do business with them because that's how they would treat me if I were in the waiter's position. Absolutely. yeah, you, know, you you get a lot, but if you are new, and if you are all new, then all you've got to rely on are the written records. And if the written records have been written in such a way that the behaviour that was alleged is shown and categorised as minor or not harassment, um, then you are going to be relying on one data set and that data set itself has been corrupted by other interests. Mm. Yeah. I mean, 
but part of me, and I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time reading the the Finn review and (laughs) today's email just seemed to be right up our alley based on our conversation. There were maybe four or five articles that, that you could probably put in the bucket of a human relations crisis. And if, if what's being reported is accurate insofar as the way that boards are handling some of these things, it really does leave a lot to be desired. I mean, you, you mentioned clean away at the beginning of our conversation, and that's one I had added to our list of <laughs> examples of, of some recent crises. And the, the way that they... Um, that the board investigated this. I think it was an investigation that was led by the chair of the board. And, I mean, doing it that way really does, it undermines the whole thing, I feel. When you keep it in-house and and try and assure people that it's being done in an independent fashion. People who are independent. Exactly, from people who are within the the organisation. And I, I don't know if this is leading to a question, but I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on it. I mean, is, there, is that, am I overdoing it by thinking that boards should, I mean, you've got to know when to, when to take it seriously because it feels like with the clean away thing, what I was reading this morning, so this is all, you know, second, third hand, whatever where you had um, whistleblowers coming forward, I think towards um, the beginning or middle of last year and and this investigation, inverted brackets, <laughs> by, um, uh, by the chair of the board, nothing changes. And then there was another a complaint or report put forward at the beginning of this year based on the same stuff. But then the, the article this morning went on to talk about the the increase in performance or share price since this particular person was in the role of CEO is like up by 300% or something like that. 300% is pretty good going over the past three years. Yeah, but then you don't just excuse bad behaviour because you've seen positive financial results. So, I mean, what is what is your thought on all of that? Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of things in there, of course, as always. One is that when we look at these things, um, it's always very easy to um, say, oh, but surely that's that's not independent. Surely this... Often the person with the conflict of interest believes that their conflict of interest gives them some special insights which make them the most appropriate person to deal with this issue. And when that person is the chair of your board or a major director or a major um, a senior executive, it can be quite hard to challenge them. Um, So first of all, I would say, well, you know, just how challenging was that board? How much did they stand up and discuss these things? Um, and how much did they just keep quiet because they didn't want to um, to suggest to the chair that they dissented? Um, 
And yeah, there was a, a lovely article in the Financial Review this morning, which said that there are 185 Australian public company directors um, across 47 of the top 50 companies in Australia. So it's a very strongly networked um, environment. People don't want to upset on one board because it can have repercussions on others and it can have repercussions on the future, um, which is in itself a lack of independence. Mm. So you have, first of all, you have that. Secondly, you have the fact that you've brought somebody in and you've possibly given them a remuneration which is very strongly linked to financial incentives. Um, and there was a huge amount of um, discussion about eight months ago of whether or not it was appropriate to have 50% of your incentives be non-financial in nature. Um, and the uh, the dust never quite settled before some other stoush came onto the scene and filled the newspapers instead. Mm -hmm. But if your board has decided to wimp out of having those tough discussions about what is and what isn't acceptable on the culture front, then you are likely to have most of your incentives in things that are unarguable. They might be gameable, but when the game comes to an end, there are clear numbers and you say this number's above that threshold, therefore you get this much. Mm. Um, and it's easy. It's transparent. It's simple to report. Whereas when you say, look, the culture was trending here, or client relationships were trending there, or the percentage of revenue from new products and new clients, or the speed with which new job openings were filled. These are indicators that will tell you a lot about the way people feel about the company. Mm -hmm. um, but they are quite hard to justify when you have the Australian Shareholders Association or one of the big proxy advisory firms standing up and saying, no, 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 that's, that's not what we're here for. Mm -hmm. um, so it is important for boards, I think, to be much more open about their philosophies, much more holistic in their views, to really understand the connectedness of the organisation, the connectedness of the strategy to the shareholders and the society in which it's going to be played out and start to have some very nuanced dialogues with their stakeholders about why they've chosen the levers and the rewards they've chosen to drive the behaviours that they want, which they think will create the results that the shareholders want. Mm. And, of course, you, you know, don't always get what you want. No. <laughs> Corporate success is not a guaranteeable thing. No. No, and and I, I kind of feel like you don't always get what you want sort of drives boards to not have the conversations that they should and to not do some of the stakeholder engagement activities that they should be doing to mm. have these conversations. But since while we're on that topic then um, about that, what, what would you say are board members' legal and moral responsibilities in relation to reports or even um, concerns 
of inappropriate behaviour, misconduct, all of that kind of stuff that that they might be hearing? I think if you hear about it, you have a duty to act on it. Um, Directors have a duty to apply a reasonable level of diligence. Um, So they must conduct their affairs with reasonable care and skill based on reasonable information that was reasonably available to them. And the trouble is when there's been a disaster, what is reasonable starts to come under question. Mm. So it's always important when you're making a decision under uncertainty, first of all, to list what you have considered and then to step back and say, is that list long enough? Is it broad enough? Is this decision going to be defensible if it all goes wrong? Mm. Um, And quite frankly, if you've done that, most people will say, okay, look, fair enough, you you did the best you could and it didn't work out. So it is quite important. And this comes back to simple, basic, structural issues of what some people would call box-ticking governance. But your agendas should have the right sorts of decisions for the board to make. Your papers should support the decisions that the board makes. And your minutes should record that the board diligently made those decisions using an appropriate amount of information. And if you do that, even if you get it wrong, Mm. you will still be very much um, exonerated if the worst comes to the worst and it all winds up in court. And if we look at James Hardy, they were never in trouble for what they did. They were only in trouble for the stock exchange announcement which misrepresented what they did. Mm. And it was found that they hadn't been appropriately diligent in investigating that. Mm, Right. Interesting. Mm. Um, Do you think what, and this is a thought I just popped into my mind while you were talking then, what do you think about, um, I nearly feel like there's an expectation that someone's head always has to roll when there's, allegations of um let's put it under the umbrella term of misconduct of any sort uh, Mm. whatever that that sort of boils down to and I nearly feel like that's that's the uh, it's communicated particularly by the media that that's the only way to solve this problem Mm. um what are your thoughts on that I think the idea of the um, the sacrificial goat is rooted in human history. Mm-hmm. Um, Alexander the Great once said, we will have a trial and at the end of the trial, he will be found guilty and he will be punished and the crowd will enjoy that. <laughs> um, and this was before the trial had even started. So yeah. it is, and on the one hand, Yes, when you find people taking advantage of young staff who are insecure in their careers, um, you do feel that, gosh, you know, I really want to punish someone for this. But um, there's a difference between putting something right and punishing someone. Mm. And the other thing that I find is that very often people will say, oh, 
this happened, therefore a director needs to go, as if the directors were like Lego bricks and you could pluck one out and plug another one in and it wouldn't matter. Mm. And wouldn't it be nice if the one you plugged in was a slightly different colour? Um, but the the truth of the matter is that a a good board will be a diverse and skills-based group. So when you pluck out a chair and a director um, who happened to be the ones that were public with a statement or who happened to be the ones that um, are next due for their tenure to be renewed, you need to think very carefully about how are we going to replace them? Mm. Where are we going to get those skills? What skills would we get? And as um, Ricardo Bofil once said when we were back in my engineering days, talking to a planning group of a council who didn't particularly like his modern masterpiece right next to a very old masterpiece, um, and a slightly less old masterpiece on the other side. And one of the council members said, but couldn't you make at least the bottom three floors start off like the building on this side and then merge to the building on that side so you wouldn't notice it so much from the street? <laughs> and Ricardo just looked over the table at them and said, to fill a gap so nobody knows it was there call a dentist yeah <laughs> and I thought that was absolutely brilliant. brilliant and it's the same with boards don't pluck a director out and replace them with another one who's an absolute cookie cutter cookie cutter carbon copy goodness <laughs> gracious I shall have to practice saying that one cookie cutter carbon copy um, of the one that you've plucked because yeah. you're going to get the same things happening in the future what you need to do is say okay these are the skills we've got these are the skills that are leaving what's in our strategic plan what are the issues this organization's dealing with what are the problems we've got to solve what are the customers we've got to understand what are the production processes and supply chains that we need to understand and given that we now have room for one or more new people what are the skills that we want and then let's get our search consultant to go out and look for those skills. Whereas what often happens, um, for example, in the case of um, Westpac, is the chairman spoke to another chairman about taking on his role because he could no longer keep it. And I, I looked at that and I thought, this is just so wrong. Yeah. Um, the outgoing person is not necessarily the best person to replace themselves. There are all sorts of dangers in yeah. adopting that. So really going back to basics and viewing these things as opportunities for better performance. I know it's said mm. so often it's almost yeah. sickening with its saccharine sweetness, but every time you have a vacancy on your board, it is an opportunity to get new skills, current skills, different perspectives and you really should be thinking hard about what the company needs not oh we've lost fred how do we replace fred yes um, not the way to do it no all. exactly i love that i love that but let's let's bring to close all of this there is so much in there and you know we have a lot of fodder now for 
future conversations, Julie. But I quickly want to cover two things. First, what have we learned from boards that have done it poorly, that have led and, and governed through human relations crises poorly? What have we learned? Um, I think the first things we've learned is it is really, really dangerous to be on the board of a company um, and not be connected to the norms of the society in which that company is operating. Um, I always shudder every time one of the big supermarkets or department stores gets a new chair who says, well, of course, I don't go shopping myself. You bloody well should. You're the chairman of a shop. Go shopping. Yes. I would expect you not just to go shopping. I would expect you to shop at your shop, shop at your competitor's shop, shop at international shops, and really think hard about what you're seeing and how customers expect to be treated, how customers are treated, um, what's going on in society, what are the movements, what are the grassroots. Um, get connected. So the boards that have done it poorly very often um, – I hate to say this, but the words um, pale and stale spring to mind, even if 30% of them are female. Then yes. you look at the other thing is they haven't practiced governance by wandering about. They don't really have a strong connection to the company. And, yeah, this is one of the five fundamentals that Bob Garrett talks about as being absolutely essential for boards is that connectedness to the organisation. Mm. Um, so they don't have that. They're also frequently unaware of what the shareholders want and they don't have the relationships to get that information outside of very specific and formal channels which are capable of being gained um, and to place it in the society context and the company context. Because it's one thing for shareholders to say we'd kind of like 300% growth over three years. Um, but when you then say, well, we're in a country where the growth rate is below 3%. So for us mm. to grow faster than the economy, we've either got to take it from our competitors or we've got to create new opportunities and that means innovation, and innovation means risk. And then you've got to have the connection with the company and say, well, hang on, how many of our people are innovative and risk takers? And are they being properly incentivized? Um, so that's what I would say is really look at those four absolutely crucial connections, the board to each other, so they don't fight each other, they fight the problems, the society, the company, and the shareholders. And if your board is stuffing up on any one of those, you're at risk. If it's stuffing up on all four, you're pretty much dead. It's just they haven't nailed the lid on yet. Wow. You heard that here first. <laughs> okay. So so what have we learned then from boards that have done it well, that, that have governed well and led well through a human relations crisis? I think the boards that have done it really well, first of all, tend to be more diverse. Mm -hmm. They tend to be boards that frequently you'll hear the senior executives say, they argue with each other a lot. Like, yes, that's their job. Yes. Uh, it's all right. Yes. Once they've made a decision, they back the decision. The arguments 
come before that, not after it, I hope. Yes. Um, so firstly, very diverse, very willing to constructively challenge and question they get out of the boardroom, they understand what's going on, they understand mm -hmm. the customers, they understand the supply chain, and they understand the staff. They meet their shareholders and they make sure that whatever strategy they have got fits with their personal observations of the world they're operating in, the skills and abilities of the company team, and the wants and desires of the shareholders. So they really balance that. And then the final one is they, they do not fight each other. Once a decision's taken, the whole board supports the decision. Um, and I think if you get those four things happening, you've got a good chance of success and avoiding these things. And certainly the boards that do it well have all done those four things. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, great conversation as always and it just reminded me to as a director to be um, proactive to be thorough and in order to do our job really really well it takes time and so do not overboard yourself oh no that that is morally unacceptable yeah your duty is such and it's not just overboarding now it's what if one of your companies has a major crisis? Yeah. When you have a major crisis, suddenly you're going to have extra board meetings and extra risk committee meetings and extra task forces, plus a whole heap of extra reading and, and finding out about stuff. So it's not just I can comfortably handle the workload of these companies at the moment. It's I can handle the workload of these companies if one or more of them run into a problem and I have to dramatically step up what I'm doing. And this is why good directors have an awful lot of what looks like spare time that they dedicate to short-term projects mm. because that is the time that's available for dealing with things that will inevitably come up. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for joining me today, sharing your um, insights and wisdom as, as usual. It was great to have you back and I look forward to our next conversation. Likewise, so do I. It's um, really good to honestly discuss these things in the spirit of let's make sure we don't make the same mistakes again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. It's a pleasure. Talk soon. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app so that you don't miss a future episode. If you want to jump on and rate and review this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. And if you feel like doing a screenshot and sharing that on social media, do feel free to do that. Please share it widely, tag me, and I would love to see that out there in the universe. Uh, if you have any more questions, please reach out through the website, getonboardaustralia.com.au forward slash podcast, where you can access all of the past episodes and also share your ideas for future guests or topics. I look forward to speaking with you in the next episode.